welcome to Beyond the Pale on WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. You can check out the show on our website at beyondthepale.org. Today's show is a special one. I'm going to be playing an interview I conducted with Ali Abunima, the author of the recently released book, The Battle for Justice in Palestine. It is a great conversation. But another reason I'm excited about today's show is because of my first segment, I'm going to have with me two special guests from the Gaza Strip, currently in the United States, on a book tour. It is quite rare to have the chance to directly uh, speak with people from Gaza, given Israel's severe restrictions on Palestinian freedom of movement and the ongoing blockade and closure of the territory. So um, this radio audience is, is quite blessed. First, a bit of background on Gaza. It is located on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, it's a relatively small strip of land bordered by Egypt and Israel. 70% of its population of 1.6 million people is made up of refugees from the 1948 Nakba, the Arabic word for catastrophe, which refers to the expulsion of 750,000 Palestinians from present-day Israel. In recent years, Gaza has been in the headlines because of a devastating Israeli blockade that has crippled the Strip's economy. And in 2008 to 2009, Israel waged what it called Operation Cast Lead, a devastating assault on Gaza, killing some 1,400 people, the majority of them civilians. The assault had a profound impact on Gaza's people. My guests are no exception. Rifat Al-Arir and Youssef Al-Jamal are, respectively, the editor and a contributor to the new book, Gaza Writes Back, a compilation of stories from 15 young writers from the Palestinian enclave. The book features stories about Operation Castlet and its aftermath, as well as other stories about daily life in Gaza, which has only grown harder since the overthrow of former President Mohamed Morsi in Egypt. Rifat is the editor of Gaza Writes Back. He's an academic from Gaza. He teaches literature and writing at the Islamic University of Gaza, and Youssef is a 24-year-old blogger from Gaza and is currently doing an MA at the University of Malaya in Malaysia. They're currently touring the U.S. Welcome to Beyond the Pale, Youssef and Rifat. Hello. Hello, thank you. <laughs> thanks, thanks, for, thanks for coming on. Um, I want to start with, with Rifat. Um, could you explain to our audience you know, how this book project started and why you think it's important? Okay. Uh, again, thank you for having me and giving me this uh, great chance. Um, the Gaza Rights Back book um, uh, was probably physically, the, the whole idea was born exactly after the Operation Castlet attack on, on Gaza that left uh, thousands of, of people dead and injured and, and, and displaced. Uh, we came out of the, uh, after the attacks with uh, so many horrendous stories, personal stories, stories of pain and suffering and determination and resilience uh, to tell. Um, I personally was uh, uh, living in an area that that is considered very, very hot uh, because it's very near to the Israeli borders between East Gaza and the borders. So I personally witnessed so many uh, stories myself. When I went back to to my classes, I also uh, asked my students to consider telling their stories, to think of uh, different ways to engage the whole world with the pain and suffering we have in the Gaza Strip. And then... uh, 
because those students already know English because they're studying English. It wasn't a very difficult task. Uh, all it needed is um, a small nudge. And, uh, we started uh, meeting regularly, deciding and determined to tell our stories uh, in order to, again, uh, communicate w uh, with the outside world with the English language rather than uh, with uh, in Arabic. Uh, and, and, and therefore, we started like uh, uh, short story writing uh, sessions, uh, creative writing sessions, in order to improve the skills themselves uh, of how to how to tell a story and how to tell it in a way that would uh, be universal and at the same time uh, uh, timeless. Uh, the, the, the whole project Gaza Writes Back is very important because it's uh, it's the first of its kind. It's written in English. And because it's written by young people who, whose voices have always been there, but uh, sadly whose voices haven't been uh, heard by the people outside of Gaza Strip. And the fact that the book is in fiction is also very important because it, uh, the book gives uh, names and faces to the numbers we all always hear in, in, in the news because uh, this is a part of how the, the whole situation in Gaza becomes more humane, how the whole stories can be taken to all corners of, of the world because, again, fiction is, is timeless and fiction is uh, very uh, universal. And Brifat, there are over 20 stories in here by different writers. How did you choose which stories to pick and you know, where did they come from? Did they come from what class? Were they outside your literature class at the Islamic University or, or what? The, the process of selection was not easy, I have to admit, because uh, many of the stories came from the classes uh, themselves. But uh, since we called for submission, when I announced that I'm working on, on a book, I, I received close to 70, 80 stories, and I had to go through the painful uh, process of uh, shortlisting and narrowing down the number of stories because we wanted to have 23 stories for the 23 days of uh, Israeli aggression and bombing on uh, the people of, uh, of Gaza. So uh, the whole idea of 23 is because, again, of the 23 days, not because we didn't have uh, uh, enough good stories, because there's still, I tell you, there are still many, many good stories out there in Gaza, and hopefully this can come in uh, uh, other books. So. Uh, the the, uh, the stories came from the classes, but also they came from outside uh, classes because uh, people interacted wonderfully with the whole idea of being published uh, uh, globally, uh, of uh, having their voices heard by the people around the world. And, and I want to go to, to, to Youssef. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about your, your experience in contributing and, and working on the book, and also, how do you think the stories in the book contribute to the the Palestinian uh, struggle? Uh, thank you again for for having us. It was a pleasure to to meet you in uh, Gaza. It, it was a pleasure to meet you too a couple uh, years ago. Gaza Freedom March and 2010, and great to 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 talk to you today. Uh, I I started writing in 2010 uh, about life in Gaza. Uh, my first article was published on Mundo Weiss in the U.S. Uh, then I started writing about, you know, my personal experience on the occupation and how occupation affected my family, uh, especially that I lost uh, my eldest brother in 2004 when Israel uh, attacked our refugee camp. 
uh, I lost my sister 2007 uh, because she was denied a medical permit to uh, travel to Jerusalem. So I started writing about, about you know, these experiences. My mother was denied a permit to visit her family in the West Bank for 12 years. Uh, then, uh, you know, this idea of writing fiction, uh, I wrote about my brother, uh, Omar, who was killed by Israel in 2004. And my, the, the article was published by Electronic Intifada. It was called uh, Why I Have Two Brothers uh, Named Omar. Two years uh, after my brother was killed in Gaza, my mother delivered another baby boy and named him after uh, my eldest brother. So I, I ended up with two brothers named Omar. One is my uh, eldest brother, and one is my youngest brother. And this is what the, my story is about. Uh, it's about my uh, eldest brother who was shot and uh, left, uh, you know, bleeding for four hours, then passed away, uh, and my youngest brother. Um, who is now, you know, struggling uh, and living with the fact that he's named after uh, another brother who was killed. Uh, so this is what what my story is, is about. Hey, let, let's let's talk a, a little bit more about that story because you know, as you said, your story is about um, you know a yeah. Palestinian fighter named, named named Omar, and obviously it's a it's a f- it's a fiction story. But you you noted that it was about your your brother. Could you sort of go into more detail about what the well, story? Uh, uh, the day my, my brother was uh, killed, I rushed to the site with some friends, so I, I found his cell phone and some of his belongings um, uh, on the ground. Uh, when I checked the, the numbers, he tried to to, to, to call before uh, he, he breathed his last uh, uh, breathed in life. Uh, I found that he was trying to, to call my uh, family's landline. So... Uh, you know, the last moments in, in his life, he was thinking of us, but he couldn't call us because probably of the uh, some, you know, military equipments, Israeli equipments in, in the area. He couldn't reach us. He couldn't. He wanted to, to talk to us, so we were on his mind until the, the very last moments in his life. Uh, so this story is an appreciation, token of appreciation. Uh, later on, uh, we were told how he was killed by uh, one of his friends. Who, who survived? So, and and this story, I'm trying to to uh, you know describe what he thought, you know, the last moments in his life, and what we thought about him l- later on as a family. Uh, so, I, I try to communicate with, with him. Sadly, now he's gone. He, he will not read the, the the story the same as he couldn't call call us. And and you know you write you know all these stories are in, are in English, Yusuf, right. including your story about your your brother. You know this is uh, I think part of a larger. Uh, of course, Palestinians have written in English for a while, but I think with with the internet, this has um, become even more prominent. So you know why why is that important to write in English? Why you know talk about talk about that? Because basically, you know, Arabic speaking. Uh, audience know about what's going on in Palestine. It's important now to, to address people in the West, English-speaking countries, uh, to educate them about what is going on in Palestine. So if many now we have thousands of people who speak in English and increasing number of bloggers, writers who write in English. So they try to, you know, reach um, largest, you know, number of people, uh, wider audience, especially here in, in America and Europe and the West, to tell them about the, the Palestinian narrative. So now it's time, you know, to reclaim our narrative, to tell our story. In the past, 
Palestinians uh, were also were most of the time, uh, uh, you know, talked about, described by other people, uh, Westerners and sometimes Israelis. But nowadays we have Palestinians telling their stories. Uh, you know, there is no influence whatsoever uh, imposed on the Palestinian narrative. Now, Palestinians tell their stories uh, in English and, uh, you know, in, in their own uh, ways, words, and they say whatever they want without uh, any influence whatsoever. So it's important because the Palestinian narrative now is, you know, uh, being, uh, you know, exposed to, to wider uh, a larger number of of audience in the West. Right, right, and and uh, yeah, it's been it's been a real pleasure to read your work on Mondo Weiss and the Electronic Intifada and and some of the other writers. I'm going to go back to to Rifat. Um, you know, in in your introduction to the book, you note that the vast majority of the stories in the book are written by Palestinian women, uh, which may be surprising to folks attuned to consuming mainstream media depictions of Muslim and Palestinian women as sort of docile and, and oppressed. What do you think the significance is of having so many female writers from Gaza in the book? Uh, first, it, it didn't come as a surprise to me, and probably it didn't come as a surprise to many people in, in Gaza, because the fact, again, on the ground is that we have probably more activism coming from females than from from males, especially when it comes to to writing, especially when it comes to to blogging and internet uh, activities, and when I again called for submissions for the book, I, I I received a lot many stories by females than by males, and I have to admit that I struggled to find male writers. Uh, that's why we have only three writers, and we have uh, 12 female writers. So this is a reflection of what's going on. The uh, women, especially the young women in, in Palestine, uh, are currently, um, again, reclaiming their own uh, presence, their own stances. They're emphasizing, uh, in, in a way or another, their, uh, their, their position in resisting the occupation, at the same time trying to be part of the process of uh, liberation, the part of the uh, struggle against occupation against apartheid Israel, and at, at the same time against uh, stereotyping them as uh, oppressed women. In, in, in Palestine, especially in Gaza and after the war, we, we, we have uh, women uh, dominating so many arenas of struggle, especially writing. Therefore, this is not uh, surprising, but again, it's significant, significant because it shows the very important role uh, women are playing and women have been playing in the struggle against uh, occupation. It's not only the fact that they are uh, um, the majority of the writers in, in Gaza Rights Pact, but also how the women are represented in the book is, is, is basically different because they are no longer uh, staying at home moms or sisters or wives and no longer the bearers and of freedom fighters because nowadays there are the freedom fighters, they are the fighters themselves. In the book, the women are represented as strong, as bold, as adventurous. They're always trying to push the frontiers, the borders of opportunity and, and, and chances. They're always there to discover, uh, to, to find closures, to find ways of, of both expressing the, themselves and 
exposing the uh, the brutality and ruthlessness of the the Israeli occupation. So it's 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 very significant again, but again this comes to reflect the reality on uh, on on the ground, and probably this is also something for the Palestinian leadership, what I call the aging Palestinian leadership. Uh, it, it's a call for them to to reconsider the the, the position towards uh, Palestinian women and and to include them in the in this the struggle against uh, occupation. And, and you know I, I want to sort of jump to the the political context in which this book is coming out of and the contemporary situation for Palestinians in in Gaza. Rifat, one contributor to Gaza Writes Back is a woman named Sarah Ali. She was supposed to join you on tour, but she can't uh, leave Gaza because of Israel, as I understand it. Could you explain her situation, why she can't leave, and what her situation tells us about Israel's control of Gaza, or or Egypt's control as well? Uh, Sarah Ali is probably the most promising young writer uh, uh, from Gaza, currently writing from Gaza. She's very open-minded. She, she has this amazing command of English. She's also involved in activism for Palestine. Uh, she started writing early in her life. Uh, she's a big name in, in Gaza. She's now teaching English uh, at the Islamic University. She's a teaching assistant. She's also a very smart when it comes to uh, uh, the academia. Uh, Sarah, it, I, I have to, to say that Sarah did not, uh, only contribute to the book uh, with her story, uh, the, the story of the land, but she also helped me uh, uh, choose the stories, read the stories, and short uh, list the stories, and edit the stories. So she was a very important part, and, and I actually mentioned this in the acknowledgement. So Sarah is a very important part of this book, and uh, uh, she managed to get her uh, U.S. visa, but sadly, she couldn't uh, come here because Israel would not give her the permit to travel through Ares and Jordan and then fly here to the States. Um, it's, it's, I'm very angry, actually, that she's not here with us because it's, again, so sad uh, because Sarah was expected to speak about how, despite Israel's oppression, despite the occupation, how young Palestinians still survive, how we managed to grow and develop despite Israel's uh, systematic and continuous and constant uh, uh, apartheid practices that would always uh, restrain uh, Palestinians and not allow them to 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 grow. Uh, at the same time, uh, like while we we had this, we expected this from Sarah. Again, Israel does not fail to prove once and again that Israel is a racist state. That Israel. Uh, uh, will not allow any Palestinian uh, to grow. This could be arbitrary and it could be systematic, like. But it's in the in the previous uh, years we've seen so many Palestinian intellectuals, Palestinian scholars, Palestinian students prevented by Israel uh, from traveling, from uh, seeking uh, education and 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 personal and intellectual development. Uh, this again tells us a lot about uh, the situation in, in Gaza. It's, it's probably the worst ever because we, nowadays we have the military regime in Egypt, in Egypt controlling the Rafah borders and it's been closed for the past uh, 50 days or more. Uh, but I don't want to speak a lot about this because we know how 
some Arab regimes are, you know, being slaves to the uh, the whole, uh, you know, they're being told what to do by the American government and sometimes by by Israel. But as an occupation, Israel uh, is is uh, uh, legally obliged to uh, allow Palestinians the, f- the freedom of of movement at least. So uh, again, while so many people are calling for, uh, I don't know, like normali- normalizing uh, the relations with Israel. It also, Israel proves that uh, Israel, as uh, an apartheid regime, is not worthy of that, that Israel does not want Palestinians to grow because Israel thinks Palestinians are inferior, because uh, Israel believes that and works towards uh, discriminating against Palestinians. So again, Sarah Ali was not allowed here because this is part of what Israel is daily and constantly doing to, to Palestinians. Israel simply does not want Palestinians to grow, does not want Palestinians to uh, to develop. But again, that's not the, the end of the story. We we will keep the struggle. Uh, Sarah's voice will uh, be heard here. Sarah's uh, story will be uh, online soon because we're, we're trying now to, to appeal and if we can't have Sarah here, we will uh, react uh, online by online campaigns and writing uh, to tell the people about Sarah. And I have one time for, for one more question. I want to go to, to Youssef. Um, you know, so you, I'm, I'm sure you've been following somewhat the, the debate in the United States about the boycott, divestment, and, and sanctions movement and the academic boycott. And, you know, the American Studies Association recently voted to boycott Israeli academic institutions, and I think the story of Sarah really shows the importance of the boycott. You know, uh, there's a lot of talk, oh, it, this boycott might violate academic freedom, but Israel is continually violating the academic freedom of Palestinians like Sarah Ali and, and other Palestinians. So, Yusuf, what, you know, talk about uh, how people in Gaza and you view the, the BDS movement and the academic boycott, uh, you, know, do, you know, talk about... Uh, its place in sort of the struggle for Palestine? Academic boycott is extremely important uh, as part and parcel of the comprehensive uh, BDS boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement against Israel, which includes economic, uh, academic, culture, and political boycott of of Israel. Uh, The academic boycott is extremely important, as I just mentioned, because Israel discriminates against Palestinian students, prevents them from uh, going to, to their schools uh, outside Palestine and even to the West Bank. For the students in Gaza who want to, to go to the West Bank, they cannot go to the West Bank universities, and West Bank students cannot go to, to, to Gaza universities. Uh, Israeli institutions and universities are complicit in, 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 in apartheid, apartheid crime in Palestine by maintaining apartheid. For example, the Technion uh, Institute in, in and Haifa contributes to, to Israel's uh, apartheid by providing the Israeli military uh, with the drones to, to, to kill Palestinians, including Palestinian students. So the academic boycott is important. We have seen the UN uh, divest recently and the, the, the Michigan uh, College uh, divestment motions and the ASA in December last year. This is extremely important. And uh, when Israeli academics and Israeli institutions and universities feel threatened, they will act and pressure the government to, to change its policies. 
regarding Palestinians, especially Palestinian students at Palestinian universities. In 2008-2009, Israel destroyed one of the main buildings in the Islamic University of Gaza, and they targeted uh, hundreds of, of Palestinian schools, uh, and so, including the, the American school, international American school in, in, in Gaza. So this is extremely important for Americans to, to uh, take actions against Israeli academics, Israeli academic institutions who are completely complicit in the apartheid crime in Palestine. And um, that's unfortunately all the time we have. Youssef and Rifat, thank you so much for joining me. They are on tour in the U.S. in support of their book, Gaza Writes Back. They will be in New York on April 4th at 7.30 p.m. at New York University. You could visit justworldbooks.com for more information. Thank you, Youssef and Rifat. Thank you very much. Thank you. And uh, stay tuned to Beyond the Pale. I will be back in a minute. Welcome back to Beyond the Pell, streaming live at WBI.org. Um, that the, the music you just heard was Mohammed Asef, the, uh, the winner of Arab Idol. He's a, a Palestinian refugee from Gaza. Um, so now I'm going to turn to uh, a, a related segment um, that, that was pre-recorded. In February, Ali Abu Nima, who's the co-founder of the website Electronic Intifada, his new book was released. Uh, it's titled The Battle for Justice in Palestine. It was published by Haymarket Books, and it exposes how the two-state solution has collapsed. It also talks about uh, how the time has come to forge a better future for the peoples of Israel-Palestine and takes a close look at the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement that uh, Yusuf and I were just talking about, which is galvanizing people in the U.S. and around the world to take actions against Israel's abuse of Palestinian human rights. So, Earlier this month, I, I spoke with Ali, and uh, what you'll hear next is a recording of that interview. So, um, you know, your your book is is aptly titled "The Battle for Justice in Palestine," and it is a look into the depressing reality for Palestinians and an exploration of what to do about that reality. I want to start with sort of the status of that battle for justice in the U.S., the world, and in Palestine, if you could talk about that. Well, I think the battle is raging everywhere, particularly here in the United States. And I thought it was important to really highlight that in the book, because when you do look at the situation in Palestine on the ground, although there's plenty of Palestinian protest and resistance, and certainly no sense that Palestinians are giving up on their rights, you do, you, you can easily feel that uh, the situation on the ground is stagnant at best and deteriorating at worst. It's deteriorating 
Israel, relentless theft and colonization of land. It's deteriorating in Gaza, where the siege is even tighter than ever. Just in the recent days, we've seen uh, electricity cut off once again as Israel closed the only food and fuel crossing into Gaza. And it seems to be getting worse in present-day Israel, where, you know, it seems every other week a new racist law is being passed, most recently the uh, law to uh, discriminate between Palestinian Christian and Palestinian Muslim citizens of Israel. So that's not to discount the uh, struggles that people there are waging, but uh, I wanted to focus on the fact that in the U.S. and in other countries around the world, Palestinians are actually winning many battles, and the Israel and the Zionist movement are really faltering in their efforts to uh, win hearts and minds, let's say. But the, uh, the, the Palestinian Authority is certainly not helping this battle, no matter, you know, uh, no matter the fact that the the Israel lobby is faltering, and, and you know, you say that the PA is hurting it both internally with the neoliberal economic policies and externally with their policies of capitulation during the peace process. Could you expand on those that's, issues? Well, that's right. I mean, it's important. You know, it all makes sense when you understand that the Palestinian Authority is part and parcel of Israeli occupation and Israel's system of apartheid. It is, you know, a native colonial authority. It's often compared to the Bantustan, the so-called black homelands of apartheid South Africa. It's not exactly like them, but that's a pretty good parallel point. And, uh, of course, what I document in the Battle for Justice in Palestine, too, is an issue that I think hasn't gotten enough attention, which is that under the guise of state-building and nationalism and national liberation, the Palestinian Authority and a small economic elite, a Palestinian economic elite around the Palestinian Authority has been deepening their ties to the Israeli occupation and making a handsome profit as a result. And while the vast majority of Palestinians have been getting poorer, uh, there are a few uh, billionaires like Bashar Luckily, the builder of the Rawadi uh, luxury housing development project near Ramallah and others who are making a killing. And I think that really needed, needed to be exposed because, uh, you know, these, this neoliberal economic development has been marketed and promoted by the likes of Thomas Friedman and other commentators in the U.S. as, you know, this great thing that is actually helping Palestinians towards uh, independence, when in fact it's deepening the grip that Israel, Israel has on the Palestinian economy. And so how exactly is it deepening that grip? I mean, you talk about you know, the debt that many Palestinians are in and the sort of economic cooperation between Palestinian elites and Israeli companies that profit off of the occupation. Um, you know, detail how that, how that is, is, uh, is going on right now. In the battle for justice in Palestine, I talk about a number of uh, examples of this. One I mentioned is Bashar Masri, the Palestinian billionaire, who is building this uh, housing project called Rawabi near Ramallah. And it's 
particularly interesting because it's been marketed all around the world, and, and you know, there have been glowing media stories about it as this example of, you know, Palestinian state building in action, that this is going to produce, you know, affordable housing for Palestinians and for a new middle class. And, in fact, you know, Rawandi is built on land that was uh, taken from surrounding Palestinian villages and landowners in some of the same ways that Israel has used to take land from Palestinians and using the abusive and unaccountable power of the Palestinian Authority to develop a uh, private, for-profit uh, project. It's also untrue that this is affordable housing. This is actually unaffordable housing for the vast majority of Palestinians who cannot ever dream of living in Rawadi. And I think it really represents the unaccountable and opaque role of global financial capital. This Rawadi project is financed by to the tune of about a billion dollars. And so it, it also shows how, um, you know, uh, that there is a kind of a normalization between Arab uh, countries and Israel and the occupation, because you have to remember that Rawadi is built uh, with a huge amount of Israeli input. Uh, many of the suppliers are uh, Israeli. And um, Bashar Mosley has claimed that, you know, all Palestinians, because they're under occupation, have to re rely on Israel to some extent for supplies like cement and other building materials. And he's absolutely right about that. But in his case, he actually boasts about how much he buys from Israel, something like 80 to 100 million dollars worth of supplies a year. And he calls this or his company calls this an economy of peace, when it's actually an economy of exploitation. So that's one crucial example. But the others I talk about in the book are the uh, turn towards these sort of extraterritorial export industrial zones, where the Palestinian Authority has signed deals, secret deals, with companies and uh, governments or government-sponsored companies abroad. I talk about one case in particular, a Turkish company that is uh, managing or will be managing an industrial zone in the north of the West Bank, where these agreements are totally silent about uh, labor rights, environmental protection, uh, and other rights to Palestinian workers. Uh, and at the same time, they provide these companies almost total sovereignty including the sovereignty to set up their own private armies and to prevent uh, anyone, including Palestinian Authority officials, from entering the industrial zone. And the World Bank and IMF are explicitly advocating in you know, reports that they've published that this should be the model for Palestine, that Palestinians, Palestinians should become cheap labor for Israeli companies so they can export to the Arab world. It's really a dystopian uh, vision, and one that I really wanted to sound the alarm about before it's too late. And, and so, you know, what does this assessment of the Palestinian Authority and the Palestinian elites that support it say about the future of Palestine? You know, it certainly brings to mind the end of apartheid in South Africa in the early 90s, where the African, African National Congress, you know, once the leading national liberation movement in that country, you know, signed on to neoliberal policies that 
kept into place those systems that developed with, with apartheid. That's exactly right, and that's the parallel I make in the book, that uh, while I do think that there's a lot to learn from the transition in South Africa, you know, 20 years after the official end of apartheid, I think there's a lot to learn, both positive and negative. And, and one of the widely noted problems in South Africa is that the country turned towards neoliberalism, leaving the white elite pretty much uh, in control of the economy, while millions of black people are poorer than ever. And what I say in the book is that actually what makes Palestine unique is that this is happening before there's any political transition. It's already underway. And so Palestinians need to think about not just political resistance to Israeli apartheid and to Zionism, but economic resistance and ways to, uh, to make Palestinian communities resilient to the neoliberal assault. And what I also say is that, you know, Palestinians, in that sense, are fighting exactly the same fight that people in Greece, in Spain, in all over the region, and all over the world are fighting against unrestrained international financial capital and neoliberalism. So that struggle in Palestine has to be tied to a, a broader uh, and deeper global struggle for economic sovereignty uh, and uh, local control of a people's resources. So I want to go to your first chapter, which I found incredibly compelling. You know, you don't start your book with a sort of laser focus on, on Palestine. Instead, there's a lot of ink spilled on mass incarceration in the U.S. What and what Michelle Alexander uh, dubbed the new Jim Crow in, in her book and what um, all of these things say about the U.S.-Israel relationship. Explain that choice that you made. Why focus on that first? This was very important to me, and it was a learning experience to understand uh, better the new Jim Crow and mass incarceration in the United States. And then again here, there's actually a parallel to South Africa. We just talked about how in South Africa, apartheid ended officially, but economic apartheid has remained and even become more entrenched. Well, in the United States, Jim Crow and segregation ended officially with the civil rights legislation that was passed in the 1960s and, and 70s. But what Michelle Alexander argues very compellingly is that a new Jim Crow took its place with the mass incarceration primarily of people of color and especially African-Americans, which means that in, in, by many measures, African-Americans, particularly African-American men, uh, are, are as badly off today as they were under Jim Crow, which is absolutely shocking. And what the parallel with Israel, there were a couple. One is the ideology that allows the United States to talk about itself as this very liberal, democratic, egalitarian country where, you know, everyone has individual rights and equality before the law, while in reality imprisoning more of its population than any country in history, and more of its ethnic and racial minorities than any other country on earth. And um, I think that this is parallel to the Israeli or Zionist ideology where of 
essentially what we're talking about is white supremacy, where people of color, uh, indigenous people, African Americans are viewed as a demographic threat that needs to be controlled with ever more uh, sophisticated and uh, total methods of, of control. And this is where Israel has really tapped into an American uh, you know, sensibility with uh, what I talk about in the book, this, this huge conveyor belt of U.S. police chiefs being taken on junkets to Israel, where they are taken to prisons like Megiddo prison, where Palestinian prisoners are tortured, including Palestinian children, and where Palestinian prisoners have died under torture. And then they come out and they say, wow, this is so great. I'm going to take what I've learned back to L.A. and back to Chicago and back to New York. And this is a marketing strategy by Israel where, you know, Israel aims, as I write in the book, to take a huge market share of what it describes as a $200 billion global homeland security industry. And they see these U.S. Uh, big city and small city police forces as a primary market. And those police forces in those cities are ground zero in the American uh, uh, mass incarceration and New Jim Crow. And so... And I, I guess the point, I, uh, you know, just to... What I say is because the, the affinities are so close, I mean, we're, we're not talking about separate struggles. We're talking about the same struggle. And companies like G4S which Palestinians are resisting in Palestine and the BDS movement is targeting, are also targeting for mass incarceration in the new Jim Crow in the U.S. So how much more powerful would we be if we were really building a joint struggle uh, against Israeli occupation and apartheid and against, for example, mass incarceration in the United States? Yeah, right. But it, it's not as if... Um you know, this mass incarceration and, and uh, surveillance that you talk about would not be happening in the U.S. without Israel, of course. And I know that's not what you're, you're arguing. So how, how do these things, you know, sort of interact? You know, before Israel was created, when the Zionist movement was in its early stages, you know, the U.S. had intense surveillance against the left and, and blacks and so on. But now, you know, there's, this, there's these connections that are very real that you detail. But so how do these things you know, play into each other, both the, how do the, the, the Israeli security industry and their ideology play into the, the U.S. Um, is role in, in sort of mass incarceration and surveillance? I'm definitely not arguing that, you know, if, if it weren't for Israel, then the United States would be a place where, you know, there's no racism and no police abuse and no mass incarceration. Far from it, as I actually say in the book, uh, the United States needs no lessons from anyone on how to operate uh, racist systems against its own citizens. What I'm arguing is that um, the, the post-9-11 uh, anti-terrorism and security uh, uh, mania uh, allows uh, Israel to repackage its technologies of control and uh, repression, which are in fact tested on Palestinians under occupation, to repackage them as foreign expertise and technical expertise. And so that's why you often see uh, American officials talking about, you know, the Israelis are the experts. They live in a tough neighborhood. They understand these things. 
And so uh, you have airports all over the company, uh, all over the, the country, uh, all over the United States, uh, buying in expertise from the former head of security at Ben-Gurion Airport, uh, a program called Behavior Pattern Recognition, which is supposedly some really sophisticated way uh, of, you know, telling if somebody is, is, you know, a potential terrorist. But you had TSA officers, Transportation Security Administration officers in, in Boston blowing the whistle and saying that actually behavior pattern recognition is just racial profiling. And what we're being told to do essentially is to treat African-Americans, Latinos, and other people of color with extra scrutiny and suspicion. And so that's a behavior, of course, that is all over the country, this kind of racial profiling. But now it gets to be packaged as some kind of sophisticated Israeli technology. And, and you know, all these connections are, of course, quite depressing, but they, they also have implications for the Palestine Solidarity Movement in the U.S. that could turn into a, a positive. You have a chapter about the war on campus on Palestine, and you specifically write about the connections made between Latino and Chicano activists and, say, Students for Justice in Palestine. What is so important about these connections? Well, that's another really good example, because just in the past few weeks, the Obama administration, uh, which has been one of the main promoters of, of this myth of Israeli expertise, both in security and in uh, you know, other technologies, the Obama administration awarded a $145 million contract to Healthy Systems, an Israeli arms company that is involved in the construction and maintenance of the uh, illegal wall in the occupied West Bank. And now this, these technologies tested and experimented on Palestinians are going to be used on the U.S.-Mexico border. And uh, so the parallel that that students are seeing, uh, Latino, Chicano students, and Palestinian students, is both the settler colonial assault on uh, people who have been on the land for a long time. Chicano people have been in the United States and, uh, you know, have been in what is now the Southwest United States since before it was the United States. Uh, and, of course, and have indigenous people, of course. But you have someone like Governor Jan Brewer in Arizona who is claiming that these people are basically invading the United States with the aim of destroying its culture. And she talks about them as a kind of demographic and cultural threat, exactly the same way Israel and Zionists talk about uh, Palestinians. And I think there are other parallels between um, Senate Bill 1070 in Arizona, which allowed basically the profiling of, of any, any person of color and for them to be challenged as an, uh, you know, an unlawful or undocumented immigrant, and laws uh, that Palestinians face every day and African asylum seekers face every day under Israeli rules. So these are connections students are making and building a joint struggle around, and that's a really important and, I think, positive development. And, you know, you, you have a, a clear vision to end uh, the battle over Palestine, a, a one-state solution, and of course you, your first book was all about that. Specifically, you devote a lot of time to the question of how a one-state solution would impact 
Israeli Jews and Palestinians, and the question of both Palestinian self-determination and Israeli Jewish self-determination. You know, how do you envision a one-state solution overcoming the objections of Israeli Jews, and how do both Palestinian and Israeli Jewish self-determination play into this vision? You know, since I wrote One Country, my first book, there has been a lot of development in this discussion, and I think a lot more people are open to this idea of a single democratic state than they were at that time, and that's really great. But I also, I wanted in this book, in the Battle for Justice in Palestine, to really answer some of the uh, skepticism and objections that still persist where people say, for example, I guess the main one is, you know, a single state sounds very nice, but Israeli Jews will never accept it. And so I wanted to look at other examples of, you know, where you have a settler colonial regime, where, of course, the people benefiting from it were very, very resistant and absolutely opposed to ending their own privileges and control. And, of course, South Africa is... One example of that, and Northern Ireland is another. And I wanted to trace how that um, solid opposition in South Africa, the vast majority of whites were opposed to ending apartheid and ending white uh, minority control until very close to the end of the apartheid regime. And I think a lot of people don't know that. They think somehow, you know, uh, whites in South Africa were all for ending apartheid. They fought against ending apartheid tooth and nail, and just as Israeli Jews are doing now. So I really wanted to, to, to really trace how that change takes place, and how when that change is underway, people really begin to shift their narratives. And I thought that um, it was really important to show that what appears to be uh, a, a stagnant situation today, solid opposition, can actually begin to change very rapidly once people understand that the balance of power is shifting and uh, there's really no future for a system based on uh, oppression and racialism. And so my last question is the tools, about the tools we use to um, go, f go forth towards that vision. Obviously, the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement uh, could be one tool, although it's important to note that, you know, the BDS movement doesn't take a position on, on states. But, you know, where do you see the BDS movement playing into the, the larger um, battle over Palestine? I think that the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement is uh, really coming of age now. And there's a dynamism that I think is just palpable. And... Is really what's really frustrating to Israel and um, Israel organizations is that this movement is so organic and so diffused. It doesn't have a central leadership. It's not an organization. It's not, a, quote, the BDS, unquote, as some pro-Israel groups like to call it. It really is a set of principles and tactics that people can help organize around it. That's what is happening across North America and Europe, and increasingly in uh, Arab countries, where people understand that this is a powerful tactic. And that it, what it does is it brings the focus right 
back squarely to Palestinian rights and Palestinian agency, some of the people who are most opposed to Palestinian rights, like Peter Feinart and J Street and others, are, uh, you know, what they like to do often is to portray this as something that's coming from outside the country. They're not the only one. But there's often a deliberate uh, concealment of the fact that this is a Palestinian-led and Palestinian-driven movement. And there is an attempt to derail it and to co-opt it with, you know, what Peter Beinart called uh, Zionist CDS. But ultimately, it's a movement that puts people before uh, a question. Do you support uh, Palestinian rights? Do you support all the rights of Palestinians? Do you support, support rights for all Palestinians? And liberal violence cannot answer that, those questions in the affirmative. And I think that's why uh, this has been such a powerful movement, because drawing fully on universal principles of human rights, international law, anti-racism, it places people before that question. And we've come to a decisive moment where people have to decide, are they with Israel as its self-definition as a uh, so-called Jewish and democratic state, which I argue is totally incompatible with rights for everyone, or are they with these universal principles? And it's a very exciting moment. And uh, one of the things I've seen uh, in even the initial stages of this book tour is how uh, many people from how many different backgrounds this movement can bring together. And that's why I have a great deal of hope that in the next coming years, uh, we're going to win this battle. And that's, you know, that's what keeps me going. Well, thank you so much, Ali, for um, for joining me on, on this. It was uh, really a fascinating look at the battle for, for justice in Palestine. And uh, that was my interview with uh, Ali Abunima, the author of The Battle for Justice in Palestine. And that does it for this week's Beyond the Pale here on WBAI 99.5 FM in New York and streaming live and it's not simply a question of differing views forget emotions this is facts what I spit is the truth makes no difference if you're a Christian or if you're a Jew they're just people living in different conditions for you they still die when you bomb their schools mosques and hospitals it's not because of I'm Marilyn Kleinberg Niemark co-host of Beyond the Pale WBAI's program of Jewish culture and politics Join the steady stream of WBAI Buddy monthly subscribers 